Most of us are familiar with the phrase, you can run but you can't hide. You heard that one before? You might have used it, right? You can run but you can't hide. But where did that statement come from? Well, it's usually attributed to the great heavyweight boxer Joe Lewis. Um, Joe Lewis was a boxer. He ruled the heavyweight division between 1936 and 1948. It's probably one of the greatest heavyweight boxers we've seen, actually. And he came up with this line before his 1941 title fight with a guy called Billy Conn. And Billy Conn was the world light heavyweight champion. And back then, they didn't have the sort of the strict weight divisions that we have today for boxing. And so Conn, he was obviously quite a bit lighter than, than Joe Lewis. And so in the run-up to the fight, some commentators, people suggested that perhaps Billy Conn's strategy would be to use a kind of like um, uh, a hit-and-run strategy. Right, so he's going to come. He's going to throw some jabs through crosses and hooks, and then get out of the way again, in and out, right, and stay out of the heavy hitter range of of Joe Lewis. And so the fight went ahead, and Con did use this strategy. And after twelve rounds, Con was ahead on two of the three judges' scorecards. Now remember back then that heavyweight or boxing matches were longer than twelve rounds; they were usually fifteen rounds. And so after 12 rounds, he's ahead with the scorecards and the judges. Lewis was, he was being outboxed and he was being beaten by the quicker, the faster Billy Kahn. And something changed. Billy Kahn fell for what a lot of people do in the sports world when they're on top. They get cocky. And after 12 rounds, he's thinking, okay. I got this guy, and he decides to change tactics. He decides to mix it up, and he wants to show that he can trade punches with Joe Lewis. And so when he came out in the 13th round, he abandoned the stylish, the tactical boxing that he'd done, and he began exchanging slugging with the champion. And the result was that Con was knocked out by Joe Lewis in the 13th round, in the 13th round with seconds remaining. He had discovered the painful way that you can run, but you can't hide. Now today, we we generally understand the phrase to mean you can run, but you can't hide, that you can run from, say, your fears, or you can try to get away with something, but eventually it will catch up with you. That's how we tend to use the phrase today. But when you actually think about the phrase, you can actually run and hide, can't you? I mean, people do it all the time. They run and they hide. You can run and you can hide. So the statement only really makes sense in certain settings, such as a boxing ring. Because if you're in a boxing ring, you can run around all day trying to stay away from the boxer, but ultimately, you've got those four corners, and ultimately, sooner or later, the boxer's going to clock you. Because you can run, but you can't hide. The other place that this statement makes sense is in this case here in Jonah that we just read, which is if you're trying to run from God. Because you can run, but you can't hide from God. So last week we, we started a sermon series on the book of Jonah. And 
we learned last week that God, he's called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. Jonah's a prophet. And he's asked him to go to Nineveh, which is the capital city or very important city of the Assyrian Empire. And God's called Jonah to preach against it for its wickedness. We also know that the Assyrians, they're a brutal empire. And that Jonah hates them. He hates them with a burning passion. Jonah also knows that because the Lord has asked him to go there and preach against the people, that there's a chance God may still spare them. Because if God was truly had already decided that punishment and wrath was going to come, he wouldn't have bothered sending Jonah. He'd have just got on destroying the city. So Jonah knows this. He knows there's a chance that God might spare them. And so what does he do? He disobeys God. Instead of going 500 miles east to Nineveh, Jonah decides to go 2,000 miles west to Tarshish. Yes. So here we are. Verse 4 tells us that, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Now, what's interesting here is, is that the Hebrew word that's used there for sent is actually the word really more accurately hurl or throw, as in throwing a spear. So I want you to imagine this. Jonah's trying to free, flee from the Lord, and the Lord's like, it's going to throw this storm at the sea. And we're talking an epic storm because it threatened to break up the ship. And not only that, but think about it. The the sailors, they were no doubt veterans of the sea. They were terrified and they're crying out to their gods. I mean, they, they would have experienced rough waters and storms before, but this one had them scared. And so what do they do like many of us as a last resort? They pray. I call it the SOS prayer. You know, the prayer that we've all prayed before. There's, there's nowhere else to turn. You're all out of ideas. You don't know what else to do. You've tried everything else, so you might as well try praying. The SOS prayer. Verse 5 tells us that. It tells us that they each cried out to his own God. Each cried out to his own God. Well, what does that mean? Well, <clears throat> in the ancient world... Most people in this time, in this geographical region, which we call the ancient Near East, they generally worshipped three kinds of gods. Okay, so firstly, you had your personal gods. These were the gods that you prayed to for your personal needs, your provisions, those kind of things. Then you had family gods. Okay, and these were the gods worshipped by members of a clan. Okay, so if you were part of a clan or a community, these were the, the family gods. And then you had national gods. Okay, these were, these were gods or guardians of entire nations. And so here, the men, the sailors, they're probably calling on every god they can think of. Right, who else? Who have I missed? Okay, yeah, make sure we get them in as well. Did you pray for that? Okay, they're, they're thinking of every god they possibly can. They're praying to, and of course they're not getting a response. Because they're praying to false gods. And when you pray to a false god, you're either praying to nothing or you're praying to a demonic entity that's masquerading as a god. 
So I want you to imagine the scene here for a moment. It's like, if you've, if you've seen the movie The Perfect Storm, that's what's going on here. It's almost like you could picture George Clooney being there with them. There's mass mayhem on the ship. There's, there's water pouring out everywhere. The ship's bouncing all over the place. The wood's creaking and splintering and cracking. The waves in the wind are deafening. Men are yelling and screaming. They're throwing cargo off the side. It's utter chaos. And what's Jonah doing? He's having a nap. He's getting some shut eye. He's catching 40 winks, as we say in England. He's sleeping. Can you imagine? I mean, you know, I'm a pretty deep sleeper, but I, I don't know if I'd be sleeping through that with that chaos going on. But you know, there's, there's someone else who was sleeping peacefully on a boat during a fierce storm. Jesus. Listen to Matthew 8.24. Remember this from the Gospels? Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. What we have here in Jonah is a little hint, a little nod, a point towards Jesus. And Jonah is, uh, and there are many of these in the Bible, Jonah is one of what we call a type of Christ. And by that I mean he's not Christ. He's not Jesus by a long shot. But there are certain characteristics and things he do which point us towards Jesus. And right here we get a little bit of a hint of Jesus. There's going to, another one coming up which I'm going to point out in a few moments. But Jonah's asleep. And we're told that he's in a deep sleep. Now this might have been due to supernatural sleep imposed by God. Or it may have been because he was depressed. But whatever the reason, when the captain finds him, he's understandably, he's a little bit astonished. He's a little bit exasperated, isn't he? Verse 6, he says, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Now, there's something very ironic going on here with what the captain just said. Because the captain tells Jonah to get up. And call on your God. And when you look at the Hebrew text here, it's the same wording that's used in verse 2 when God says, arise. It's the same word as get up. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out. Again, it's the same word used here. So here's Jonah trying to flee God's commandment. And now he's getting the same commandment, but from the captain, a pagan. Jonah must have thought he was having a nightmare. Because it's the same words God spoke to him just earlier. You see, you can run, but you can't hide. You can't outrun God. And this, this goes for us too. You cannot outrun God. Because you know what? You might spend your whole life trying to outrun God. Ignoring his call on your life and his path for your life. And we all have a call on our life from God. doesn't mean you're going to be a pastor or in, specifically in church ministry. We all have a calling on our life. But you can spend your whole life ignoring that. You can get to your deathbed thinking, I, <laughs> I outrun God. He never caught me. But in the end, we all have to stand before him and give an account 
of our life. All of us. Because you can run, but you can't hide. And you know, there's, there's an important lesson to be learned from for us with this. And it's this. When we disobey God's will for our life, knowingly and deliberately like Jonah did, and when, when we try to run from God and when we try to forge our own journey, carve out our own path, go down your own way, that goes in the opposite direction to God's path for us, you can expect to have storms in your life. Resisting God, pushing away from God, will bring storms into your life. That's not to say that some of the storms you get are because of that, but it's guaranteed if you're trying to live your life in the opposite direction God wants you to. So the captain he echoes God's commandment to Jonah to get up and go and call out to his, his gods. And he says, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. So just like himself, the captain presumes that Jonah will have his own God or gods that he can call out to. And he's probably thinking, well, we haven't tried yours yet, so we might as well. Perhaps you have some gods that we've not heard of. Perhaps you can call out to them. Now what this reveals about the captain, and actually most of the people of his time in that part of the world, is that he was a polytheist and a syncretist. What? A polytheist and a syncretist. What on earth do those words mean? Well, a polytheist is, just, is somebody who worships multiple gods. Poly meaning many, theist meaning somebody who believes in God. So a polytheist worships many gods. A syncretist is somebody who mix and matches, cuts, copies, and pastes from all kinds of different religions and puts them into a bowl. So, you know, so they're like, okay, I'm going to have a little bit of this. I'm going to take a little bit of that from that. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. Let's see. Uh, God is love. Yeah, I'm going to pop that in the bowl. That's a good one. Um, let's see. God's wrath. No, I'm going to leave that to there. Um, let's see. Compassion. Yes, we'll have some compassion. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, hell. No, no, don't. Let's leave that one out of there. And I'm going to borrow that. Mm, I like the idea of reincarnation. Let's pop that in there. You know, let's mix it all up together. And what do you have? You have your own nice, individualized, personalized religion just for me. That's syncretism. Mixing and matching. Putting it all into a bowl and creating your own religion, which you really like because it never challenges you. Israel stood out because they claimed to worship one God. The one true God, Yahweh. Yahweh is God's personal name, by the way. If you're wondering, who's Yahweh? Yahweh is the personal name of God. It's, it's like, I don't know, you know, you can call me pastor, but my personal name is Dan. You can call me Dan as well. Yahweh is God's personal name and Israel claimed to worship him alone but the truth was that Israel like just all the other pagan nations was often worshiping multiple gods it was taken a little bit from here taken a little bit from there taken a little bit from the Canaanites and mixing it in with their own religion and really so much of the old testament is about 
this back and forth with Israel and God. They're unfaithful to God. God reigns them in through, through punishment. They come back to God. Then they drift off again. And it's this push and pull throughout the Old Testament of God trying to keep Israel on the straight and narrow to sort of speak. But you know, the interesting thing is that is many of us today, we do exactly what Israel was doing thousands of years ago. Because often we'll, we'll claim to worship God. We'll claim to be, to be believers, to be, to be Christians. But often our belief system actually looks more like syncretism. Because we cut and we, we copy and paste and mix and match what we want to believe. What we want to believe. So that we have this, this personalized, this individualized religion that's tailor-made for us. So that it doesn't offend us. It doesn't challenge us. It doesn't stretch us. And we do that rather than following and believing what God's word tells us is true. So, for example, let me give you a couple of examples, right? There, there are Christians who, who say they believe in reincarnation. But what does God's word actually say about that? Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There's no reincarnation there. You've borrowed that from another religion like Hinduism. Another one is, is Christians who say, well, you know, I just I don't believe in the reality of hell. Well, the Bible has, has plenty of references to hell, and you know who talked about hell the most? Jesus. Again, you're borrowing and cutting and pasting that from, say, something like Unitarian Universalism. You know, there was a, um, there was a new study that just came out uh, from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. It was a new nationwide survey of America's Christian pastors. And I couldn't believe this when I read the results, but it shows that a majority of pastors lack a biblical worldview. In fact, just slightly more than a third, 37%, possess a biblical worldview. And the majority, it said, 62%, hold a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. No wonder many churches in America are in trouble and in decline. It's because when you stray away from God's word, God will not honor that. The captain of the ship is a syncretist. And he asks Jonah to pray to his God. Notice Jonah doesn't. He doesn't. He's fleeing God. It's like, I'm not, I'm not going to suddenly turn around and start praying to this God that I'm, I'm fleeing from. I'd have to engage him. No. And so what do the sailors do? They, they cast lots and they find out who's responsible for the storm. And you know, the sailors, they're savvy enough and they're spiritually aware enough to know that this is no ordinary storm. That it's, it's supernatural in nature. And so they cast lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. And now all the attention is on Jonah. And the, the sailors grill him with a succession of questions. What they essentially do is like, show us your ID. 
Verse 8, they say, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Now notice that nearly all these questions are questions of identity. They are identity questions. What kind of work do you do? How many of us identify ourselves with our job or with our work? Or how often is that one of the first questions you ask somebody who's new, who you've just met? Blah, blah, blah. What do you do? We equate it with it being their identity. And, you know, for some people, their job is their identity. It's, it's, it's everything to them. You know, we have people who talk about something being their life's work. Work is their life. And then you have other people who their, their job is just a means to an end. It's nothing to do with their identity. It's literally a way to pay the bills. You met people like that. It's like they, they couldn't care less about their job. It's just a means to an end. But often we relate ourselves to what we do for a living. But notice that the next three questions all have a, a common theme. They're all to do with ethnicity and nationality. Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? You know, we don't just identify as individuals, even though in many respects we are in a very individualistic culture and society. But we also define ourselves by the communities we're part of, don't we? You're part of this church community. That's part of your identity, praise God. But we identify ourselves through communities, through hometowns. My hometown in England is a town called Blackburn, so I'm what you call a Blackburnian. I'm from a, a state or a county, as we call them, called Lancashire. So I'm also a Lancastrian, a Lancashire lad, as we like to say. And if you're a girl or a woman from Lancashire, you're called a Lancashire lass. But that's part of my identity. Uh, we, we define ourselves by... Um, political affiliations, unfortunately. And of course, by religious beliefs or lack of, right? Oh, you're part of this church. Or, oh, yeah, you believe this. Or, oh, you're an atheist. Cool, I'm an atheist too. You know, we, we connect with each other on different levels by these identity markets. And in Jonah's day, these were huge because they were far more communal back then than we are today. Now, Jonah's answer is revealing. Verse 9, because he answered, he said, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So notice the order in which he answers. It's the first thing he says. He says, I'm a Hebrew. So he doesn't first identify himself by who he worships, but by his ethnicity. He says, I am a Hebrew. In other words, that to Jonah is the most significant thing about him. More significant than the God he worships. It's his ethnicity, his race. And so what he's essentially doing is making an idol out of his ethnicity. 
He's saying that that is bigger and more important part of his identity than the God he worships. And you know, I know the, the whole issue of race is a hot topic today. But again, there's something we can learn here. It's that we have to be careful that we do not do the same thing that Jonah did. That our race or our ethnicity is the main or most important part of who we are. No, no, no. As Christians, our identity in Christ Jesus should be the most important part of who we are. That's what defines you, first and foremost. That is what connects us all. That's what brings unity between brothers and sisters, regardless of the color of your skin, is our identity in Jesus Christ. And often we, we get caught in the ways of the world, and we make something else our defining identity, don't we? Right? So race can be one of the things that is up forefront before God. Money, of course, is a big one. Our sexual identity can come before our identity in God. Our political affiliation can come before who we are in God. I can't tell you how many times I hear Christians talking more about politics than they do about God and Jesus. That's all you need to know. Because we should be talking more about Jesus than we are about politics. I could go on. But our core identity should be who we are in Jesus, which is precious children of God, adopted to be co-heirs with Jesus Christ, and that transcends skin color. Jonah's core identity should have been as a prophet and a worshiper of Yahweh. But instead, it's his ethnicity, and this helps explain why he's so reluctant to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want any of those Assyrian foreigners possibly being exposed to the mercy and the grace and the compassion of Yahweh. He he doesn't want to serve the interests of pagans, of non-believers. He only wanted to serve the needs of fellow believers. And here's another lesson for us because we can be guilty of the same thing, can't we? I've only been interested in serving the needs of other believers and and church folks, of of fellow Christians. But listen, how, how we treat the world, especially those who are different to us, the other, as we as we say, how we treat those who are not like us is paramount to our witness as followers of Jesus. And it's paramount to showing the world a different, more noble way to treat and love one another. One of of the main messages of the book of Jonah is that God cares how we as believers care for and treat people who are different from us. And you know, I, you know as, as well as I do, the present climate and culture that we are living in is really tough, isn't it, right now? We all feel it. There's, there's more division, there's more vitriol, there's more animosity towards each other than perhaps I've ever seen in my lifetime. It's all connected to views on this and views on that. But if we handle this in a Christ-like way, there's actually a real opportunity for the church to shine and to stand out by how we treat the other This is a moment where the church can show the world what it truly means to love one another. 
And I challenge us, can we, can we truly follow Jesus when he says in Matthew 5.44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Oh, that's a hard call, isn't it? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is so anti the culture right now. Because the culture says you destroy your enemies and you bury them. And Jesus is saying, no, you pray for them and you pray for those who persecute you. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Can we do that? Can you do that with an honest heart? Jonah's not there yet. In fact, Jonah's a long way off being able to love his enemies, those who are different from him, and he's a long way off being able to pray for them. Remember as well that the sailors on the ship, they they were pagans. right? They weren't Hebrews. They weren't worshippers of Yahweh. And yet we know that Yahweh is the one controlling the storm. Because how does Jonah describe God? He says that he is God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. When Jonah describes Yahweh that way, God of heaven who made uh, sea and dry land, really what he's doing is he's saying, this is, this is God, this is the supreme God, the one true God, right? Because if you're the God of heaven, that means you're the God of all gods. And he made the sea and the dry land, so he clearly has authority over those elements. And so it's at this point that the sailors realize what is going on. They realize the storm has come upon them because Jonah's trying to run away from God. And in verse 11, they ask, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Well, Jonah knows the problem and he knows the answer as well. Bearing in mind what we know about Jonah so far, which is he's not the most stellar character. He's not the greatest, most lovable guy, is he? But his answer in verse 12 is rather surprising because he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. This is an amazing moment in Jonah. Where again, you get an instance of Jonah pointing us towards Jesus. Because here, what Jonah is essentially saying to the sailors is, I'll take on God's wrath through the waves and the storm so that you don't have to. Jonah said, I'll give my life to save the sailors and appease God's wrath. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you and I. That's exactly what Jesus did for each and every one of us. He gave his life to save us from the wrath of God due to sin. He sent his one and only son for you, for me, for everybody, so that we could be saved through him. Mark 10.45, Jesus speaking here says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for you. For you, for me. Unlike Jesus, though, with Jonah, there were, I'm guessing, probably some mixed motives here. Because, yeah, he may have softened a little bit to those foreigners, 
and wanted to see their lives saved. But I would also wager that part of it is that Jonah has decided he'd rather die than preach to the Ninevites. He's basically saying, I'd rather die than see my enemy receive God's grace and mercy. I don't want them knowing you. I don't want them being saved. I'd rather die. Well, to the credit of the sailors, they give another option. They try to row back to the shore. But what happens when they do that? The storm gets even more intense. And they realize that to stand a chance of surviving, they need to throw Jonah overboard. But not before crying out to the Lord. Verse 14, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. So as that raging sea becomes calm, the moment they get Jonah off the ship, you can imagine the sailors thinking, okay, that cannot have been coincidence. The ship was about to break up. We tossed this fellow Jonah off the side and all of a sudden everything's calm. That's not coincidence. And it's at that point that they realize they are in the hands of an awesome God. You see, it's easy to think of today's scripture passage being about Jonah and the sailors and the captain. Right, Because they seem to be the main focus of the narrative. But who's in control here? That verse, that sentence that says, For you, God, have done as you pleased, is key here. Because who's in control? Who is the one controlling the whole narrative? God. God is the one who hurled the storm at them. God is the one who caused the lot to fall on Jonah. And God's the one who calmed the storm. Everything is being orchestrated by God and is under God's control. The same is true for our lives today. Because we, we can choose to obey God and be obedient to his call on our lives, or we can disobey God and run from him. But either way, his will will still be done. God's still going to get his way. God's will will still be done, whether you're on board or not, pun intended. Because you can run, but you can't hide from God's purposes and plans. Carl R. Truman, a pastor and an author, he says this, quote, God is sovereign, God plays the long game, and his will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. One last thing here. Our passage ends with the first sign of God's grace in Jonah. The sailors come to faith in Yahweh, the one true God. Verse 16, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Sometimes it's the storms in life that finally bring us to our knees and cause us to turn to God because we realize you can run, but you can't hide. Let's pray.